like Rabbi Mira, when we continue to send loving prayers and thoughts to, and she fell today and hurt herself, but will God willing recover, I too had a fall this week. I fell pretty hard. I literally fell on my face. It all happened so quickly and with such force and such profound shock that I'm still feeling it to this moment. I was pretty much one moment in a state of ecstatic rejoicing and the very next moment I was tumbled into a little ball on the street as my five-year-old child or watched in horror. It wasn't anything, thankfully, tragic, nothing about the current state of New York City and all of that. It was much simpler and, frankly, on some level funny, if not absurd. I've been working hard for a while to just a little parenthetical note here, just a kind of pause in the sermon. My children um, will know a lot about their lives from listening to their Abba <laughs> sermons, God willing, one day. And it's on some level a, a bit of a, of a gamble being a rabbi's child, but I hope that they appreciate this. I, you know, I've been working hard for a number of years uh, to be the one that my little guy wants to hang out with a little bit, you know, choose me over mom kind of thing sometimes. <laughs> Once in a while, you know. And I've worked on it, you know. There was a moment when Orr was born that he used to want to go to sleep with me and so on, but that was long ago. But like I was making inroads on picking him up from the bus. And so on Wednesday, as the bus, you know, the time for picking up the bus drew near, I, I got myself together and I ran to the bus stop to pick him up because it was available, Ariel was not around. Picked him up and we just had the best time ever for 10 minutes. We were just giggling and joking and I was making up all kinds of little games, you know, about stepping on a crack and breaking your back and doing circles and all kinds of fun and he was giggling and I introduced myself to him and said, hi, Mr. Ingber, I'm also Mr. Ingber. I'm here to pick you up. And about 10 minutes into that, he turned to me and he said, Abba, I want you to pick me up every day. <laughs> wow, that is a prize. That was, you know, something, you know, a, a gift, something that I had been working towards for, in my mind and my heart. And, and I couldn't think of anything to do. I was so excited. I thought I better up my silly game. I'd been so silly, that's what was winning the day. So I saw the ledge to a brownstone right next to me as he said those words, and I tried to leap onto the top of it and to stand on it. I had a whole vision. It was very quick. It was a flash of insight. I'm going to stand on the ledge, and I'm going to scream, Mr. Ingber, you've got a deal every day. You know, something like that. It was going to be like a triumphant, you know, Rocky, da 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 You know, it's going to be a big thing. And, of course, my... As you probably know already, clearly, I kind of gave it away. My leg didn't quite clear the ledge. And all the weight of my body tumbled over, and it was pretty freezing on, on Wednesday. It felt like it was a baseball bat that I hit as my face 
landed on the pavement. And in the aftermath of that, you know, from the heights to the depths, from the, from the beauty to the horror of sitting with blood and wondering what just happened and worried about Orr and she was going to be okay because he was a bit in shock too. The moment passed and I lost it. It was gone. Like my son didn't really want to kind of a little bit confused and we went home and I remember sitting, I kind of went and got a big thing of ice and put it on my face. My wife was, everybody was wondering what happened to me on the way to the bus stop. And I just sat in my chair and I cried and I just broke down and started crying. And I thought to myself, I could, I could hear in my voice, I could hear in my head. I felt embarrassed, I felt ashamed, I felt silly, I felt, but most of all I felt, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but I felt punished. I felt like I had a moment, a narrative, a story started to run in my, in my mind like, why? So beautiful, such a moment, so, such an epiphany, felt almost like cruel. And I could hear that story running. What had been a really tough day already crossed over into this really, really horrible scene. And it's hard, isn't it, not to fuel feelings of self-pity and self-blame, of shame. And you get the story, right? You get the gestalt. But I wondered to myself more broadly, what is it that we might have to both understand and then do in order to shortcut that path to pain and prolonged suffering? And I find a, a pathway here in tomorrow morning's Torah reading. A very odd moment in tomorrow morning's Torah portion. Very odd and much discussed and much analyzed and commented upon moment happens in chapter 24. The book of Exodus brings us tomorrow morning's reading in chapter 24, Mishpatim, which is chock full of laws. After the ecstasy of Sinai, there are no, short, no fewer than 53 laws that are promulgated and given over to the Israelites. Jack Cornfield, the great Jewish Buddhist, said, after the ecstasy, indeed, the laundry list of how to bring Sinai into every moment of our day. And towards the end of tomorrow morning's reading, we find Moses grabbing his brother, his brother, two of his brother's sons, Nadav and Avihu, and 70 elders, and deciding unbidden by the divine to ascend the very mountain that they had all stood at the foot of. And what would seem like another revelation at Sinai occurs. The Torah tells us that Moses, Aaron, and the two sons of Aaron and the 70 elders, they ascend the mountain. And here in verse 10, chapter 24, and they saw, they beheld the God of Israel underneath the legs of God. There is the likeness of a livnata sapir, a brickwork of sapphire, a sapphire brickwork. And like the essence of sky in its purity. This is a remarkable moment. For many commentators, of course, the problem of these texts is not how is it that 
70 elders, and then the others got to have a peek behind the screen. They got special access. The problem, of course, is what does it mean to see God? The text says that they see God. That can't be in a tradition that doesn't have an image of the divine that's permissible. Such are the problems of, of the medieval philosophers and others. But a clue, I think, to what's happening here is the sapphire brickwork. You see, the word used, and this is brought to attention by many of the commentators, the word used for bricks here, livnat, livena, livenim, is a word that appears in the Tower of Babel story, the Babel, the Babel story, but most importantly, it appears in the story of the slaves of Egypt. The slaves in Egypt are the ones who were bidden to do brickwork. How profoundly triggering and activating it must have been to imagine them seeing the very bricks that just a few short moments ago were the symbol of slavery and the symbol of servitude, the symbol of suffering, to see that same symbol now in a divine image that is sapphire-esque, blue, profoundly transparent, luminous even. The word sapir, sapphire, is understood in many Hasidic texts to be from the word sipur, that when you tell a story, it becomes more and more clear, like the clear blue of sapphire. The way that the Degel Machan Ephraim, the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, understands the mitzvah to tell the story of Egypt each and every year is, right? The more you tell, the more sapphire-esque, the more clear it can become. They see before them a symbol of slavery that now has been transposed, transfigured, transvalued into a symbol of glorious, luminous clarity and purpose, divine power. Our sages long ago knew that symbols abound. We are presented with hard facts in the world and then bidden to do the soft work of interpretive reconstruction and healing. The most powerful thing anybody can ever say to you is that is the fact, but what do you make of it? What do you make of that which was given to you, the story that you've received, the events that have taken place, the things that you have undergone, the moments of falling flat on our faces? What story do you make of it? Is it a story of suffering? Is it a story of a cruel and blind universe that sees a father at the moment, at the height of his joy, and then says, I'll let you fall on your face? Or is it more like the great therapist, Carl Jung, philosopher and archetypal theoretician, who said that all of life is a dream and its interpretation is for us? The symbols are not given in their meaning, only in their surfacing. You can cut the ribbon of inevitability by cutting the assumption about what that might have meant and maybe choosing another story. It wasn't long after, as I sat in that seat, that as I told the story of woe 
to someone, they said, I think the universe is telling you to slow down. Another person said to me, I think the universe is saying that once you got what you wanted, you didn't have to do any more. And oh, the 70 interpretations of Torah began. Two days later, I don't even remember the shame of falling on my face. I think it's really quite lovely that I received such a delicious, direct message that was unavoidable every time I look in the mirror. Of course, it's a bit assumptive of me to make a claim that each and every life circumstance is open to the kind of malleability and interpretive power that I so easily and with such facility display here from all of my friends. Might not be the best idea to go to someone who's just had something horrible happen to them and tell them what you think the meaning of that event is. But certainly the Torah here is inviting us to be a bit more curious. I remember last week when discussing anti-Semitism in the community and beyond, I remember distinctly that there was a conversation a number of years ago about flags as symbols. And this week as I was discussing the presence of flags on our bima with someone, a rabbi whom I admire and, and deeply respect. He said to me, isn't it true that the symbol of the flag or the symbol of the Torah or the symbol of any of the relics here within the synagogue, all the things that are part of us, isn't it true that they make a statement? And I said to him, it's true they make a statement. But what that statement is, is a question that one should ask, not an assumption that one should make. The right question is, what kind of Jew are you? Not, I see you wearing a big velvet yarmulke, you must be ultra-Orthodox. The right question is, if you say you're a believer in the state of Israel, not you are a Zionist, but what kind of Zionist are you? What does it mean to you to support the state or its opposite? Symbols are questions. There's something that we might interrogate and ask ourselves as often as possible, some more strongly than others, that's true. There are lines. But narratives are open, thankfully, to interpretation. Falls and mistakes, events that we have no control over, are open to our own capacity to see them either as bricks of slavery or the luminous, clear bricks of a divine revelation. That choice is ours. And it's vital that we make that choice as often as possible to liberate ourselves from stories and slaveries that we no longer, no longer need to honor. May God bless us with the clarity of that Livnata Sapir. The Talmud teaches us that that blue sapphire was indeed a device that was an associative device. As we were looking at the Shema today, I saw the blue letters of the word Techelet, the blue string that was on 
the tzitzit on the garment of the one who wore the prayer shawl. The Talmud says one would look at the blue of the tzitzit and that would remind them of the blue of the ocean. And the blue of the ocean would then remind one of the blue of the sky. And the blue of the sky would then remind one of the blue bricks, the blue sapphire, the sapphire brickwork. That to me is a powerful, a powerful brickwork, if ever there was one. May God bless us with that healing. Please rise if you are able. <laughs>